Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Uh, If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church, and I'm so glad you're here. And uh, for the next 40 minutes or so, uh, I'm going to be emphasis on or or so this Palm Sunday. I'm going to be teaching um, as we continue our series through Hebrews, but today in the context of Palm Sunday. But before I get started, um, it's important that I remind all of you wonderful TLCC people that this past Christmas, we received a Uh, a special offering and pledges to fund our missions program over the course of a year. And um, uh, the pledge period is finished next Sunday. And uh, I just want to give you a sense of how you're doing. Uh, The team's been trying to update you around this the last couple of weeks. Uh, I think this is the first time I've really mentioned it at any length, uh, but it's important that I do so. So, When it's all said and done, our goal ended up being $400,000. That's kind of the bare minimum that we need to fund our missions projects. And uh, we had $392,000 pledged. We have uh, received at this point $354,000, which is amazing, fantastic. And... And um, we have $38,000 outstanding uh, and have every confidence in the world that that's going to come in next week. And I just want to challenge you, let's end up over $400,000, which means that we'll have what we need. Uh, I'd love for it to be more if somebody wants to write a $100,000 check or something, uh, because there's a lot of good that we can do and that we are doing with these monies. So if you've not pledged, but you want to participate, please do. Um, and if you did pledge, I, I'm encouraging you to keep your pledge. And um, let's pray to end up over $400,000. You know, what kind of things are going on? All kinds of things. Uh, but for instance, uh, we are, through our partnership with Convoy of Hope, which is a a partner that we fund very generously and work with in other practical ways. Um, We are in Ukraine right now serving people in need uh, as a result of your generosity. Um, We are... uh, this past week, Emmanuel uh, Anam Saki, who leads our partnership with Adopt One Village in Ghana, Africa, and we've had ministry going on there for many, many years now. We are now, I, I was told this week, I believe at 14 villages that uh, we're doing everything in partnership with Adopt One Village from bringing water to those villages to teaching kids in school to we've built a, a, a hospital hospital there, actually the nicest hospital in that region, Abatifi Kwahu region. It's the vaccination center for that region for COVID. It's um, uh, babies are being born there. People are being cared for there. Lots of stuff like that going on. So your, your regular tithes and offerings help us do all this. And there's a lot to be done here, right? There's a lot going on. We've got a staff of about 30 people working hard to serve folks in facilities and all that stuff. That's that. But then there's this 
other thing we do once a year where we say, hey, we just don't want to do things here. This is an airport. This is someplace, 747 Northfield is a place we come to so we can go from here and spread. What do we do, guys? Everybody say it with me. Spread God's love in ever-widening circles. So uh, thank you, and God bless you in all of that. Could I have a touch more, just a touch more uh, in the monitor, please? So as I mentioned a moment ago, today is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday offers a very appropriate context for today's teaching from the New Testament book of Hebrews. Palm Sunday, uh, as uh, most of you know, celebrates the day some 2,000 years ago when Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem five days before his crucifixion and then his resurrection three days later. The Palm Sunday story is a beautiful one. Uh, Jesus uh, was staying in Bethany with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and he left Bethany on this particular Sunday 2,000 years ago, came to the Mount of Olives, and from the Mount of Olives, you can see off into the distance, you can see Old City Jerusalem, you go down the hill through the Kidron Valley into Old City Jerusalem. Uh, behind me, there's uh, a picture of a group of people who traveled with us to Israel a couple of years ago, and here we are standing on the Mount of Olives. You can see Jerusalem in the background. When Jesus crested that rise on the Mount of Olives, he saw Jerusalem, and as he, as he went down that valley and, and this group, we walked down that path as best as archaeologists and his historians can tell us that Jesus traveled on a donkey. He was met by large crowds. These crowds were shouting joyfully uh, a messianic psalm uh, where they were uh, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Many of them took their coats off, laid them in the roads, took palm branches from the fields around them, laid them on the road. Um, Religious leaders were standing there offended that Jesus was actually receiving people's prayers and worship, and they rebuked him, and Jesus said, if these people hold their peace, the stones are going to cry out. Um, and he ended up entering the, the city, and as he entered the city, he broke into tears, and he said, um, uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you knew basically who I was and the peace I could bring you. And then as he entered the cities, there, the city, there are a couple of texts that tell us the whole world had been stirred up by Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. So that, that's Palm Sunday. It's, 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 it's amazing and it's something important that we celebrate on this week before Good Friday and Easter. When I read the Palm Sunday story, I'm always struck by the mix of desperation and hope expressed by the crowd that day. The word they shouted, Hosanna, is literally a cry for help. It's a prayer from one of the Messianic Psalms where the Jewish people were praying for the Messiah to come and save them. Psalm 118, Lord, save us, or Hosanna, literally. Grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I feel like those people who welcomed Jesus with this prayer on that day represented everyone who's ever lived because somehow in the depths of our being, we know that we need saving. I think that every human being has felt that something is missing and countless millions have identified that missing something as a desire for someone, for a relationship with God. 
our creator. And whether we completely understand it or not, we know that something separates us from God. Scripture teaches us that something is sin, that human beings since the very beginning have missed the mark, that the choices of the human family have separated us from God, that we need help, that we need a Savior. And Scripture tells us that God promised he would in fact send a Savior, and Christians believe that Jesus Christ was that Savior. And that he came not only to be the Messiah of the Jewish people, not he didn't just come to save the Jewish people, his people, but that he came to save everyone, anyone who believes in him. So when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he was on his way to do what needed to be done to save us. He was the answer to the prayer those people were praying, their cry for help. And he was the answer to the prayer that we pray when we are honest with ourselves and know we need help. He was on his way to offer himself as the sacrifice necessary to deal once and for all with sin. He was about to pay the wages of sin for all of us, which is death. And he was about to enter death and defeat death and to be raised from the dead in order to give us the life that God wanted us to have in the beginning, but which we messed up by our own free will, by our own choices. Now, today, Hosanna, that expression, Hosanna, is an expression of praise. I like that. Literally, it's a cry for help. But today, it's become an expression of praise. And I think that that's because that ancient prayer for salvation has been answered through the death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. So on Palm Sunday, we say, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, with that in mind, and wanting to acknowledge that this is Palm Sunday, I want to continue the teaching that we started in early January as we've been teaching through Hebrews. And I will remind you and just kind of let folks who may be new to us know that Hebrews is a letter written to Jewish Christians in the mid-A.D. 60s, about 30 years after that first Palm Sunday. These Jews, these Jewish Christians as they're commonly called now, had confessed their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. They were living in Rome. They were first facing persecution from the Romans because they believed Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. And they were facing some level of persecution and had certainly been outcast from Judaism because their Jewish brothers and sisters were offended that these what we call Jewish Christians, they weren't calling themselves Christians yet, probably. They just saw faith in Jesus as a logical extension of Judaism. These Jewish Christians had come to believe that what Jesus had done had made the Jewish religion minus Jesus obsolete. And some of these Jewish Christians, and by the way, all the early followers of Jesus were Jewish, of course. Some of these Jewish Christians were thinking about leaving this young Christian church. It was only 30 years old, and the church in Rome would have been a lot younger than that. They were thinking about leaving this young Christian church and returning back to Judaism. But 
The author of Hebrews, and why were they thinking about doing that? Because they were marginalized, they were outcast, they were persecuted. It was difficult being a Jesus follower in Rome at that time. And so in their discouragement, they're, they're, they're wondering, you know, is, is Jesus who we've come to believe he is, or perhaps he isn't, and if he isn't, it'll make life easier on us because we can go back to what we had before and we can be much more comfortable. But the author of Hebrews, who was extremely well educated in Judaism and Jewish scripture, makes a masterful argument that as marvelous as Judaism was, Judaism was ultimately all about preparing the way for the Messiah and that Jesus was the Messiah and that to leave Jesus and his church and to return to the law of Moses and the rituals of the tabernacle and the other practices of Judaism as wonderful and necessary as all of that had been was to return to something less than what God had finally done through Jesus. So when Sharon and I were dating. We spent uh, most of our time away from each other. I was traveling around the country uh, preaching in churches. She was in college, and uh, we didn't get to see each other as often as we wanted, but I had a picture of her that I treasured, her high school senior picture. And, uh, you know, I adored this picture. Uh, It was almost, not quite, but it was almost an object of worship to me. Well, then after a couple years of dating, we got married and I no longer focused on this picture. I focused my attention on her. She uh, was the person that the picture was a picture of. And I went from a one-dimension relationship most of the time with this picture to a three-dimensional relationship with an actual person. She, the real person, laughed and smiled and talked, and I could put my arms around her. Uh, The fact is, as beautiful as this picture is, she was better than the picture, even though the picture is wonderful. I got her, Sharon, I know this embarrasses you, but would you please come up here just for a second so I could demonstrate, so I can demonstrate this point. Please take your time. Forty years later, she's still looking pretty daggone good. So now imagine, imagine if I said, you know what, I've decided that I'm going to leave you and I'm going to go back to your picture. (laughs) She seems only too willing for that to happen. But imagine I'm going to leave you and I'm going to go, oh, I love this, mm, I love this picture. This picture is so precious to me, and, and uh, it was nice knowing you this last, how many years we've been married? 38, 39 years. 39? This is April. This month, 39 years. Um, but it's kind of hard sometimes living with a real person. There are lots of challenges and so on and so forth, but this, this picture never, ever said a mean word to me. <laughs> now I'm getting off track. Thank you very much, sweetheart. I appreciate it. 
Which leads me to today's section from Hebrews, which begins Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. The law, meaning everything God gave Moses on Sinai to the Jewish people, his chosen people. The law, the tabernacle of Moses, the system of worship, the sacrificial system, the whole thing. He said the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Or as the message says it, the old plan was only a hint of the good things in the new plan. And so here these, these Jews are who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the culmination of everything the law was leading to, and they were thinking about leaving the person of Jesus and the relationship they now had with God that was unlike anything that certainly a normal person had ever had in times past. They were thinking about leaving the reality and going back to the shadow. They were thinking about leaving Jesus and going back to what the picture had pointed to. So let me organize today's teaching like this. I'm going to teach through Hebrews 10. I I, I dig into the first section and then don't get worried because I take a lot of time with that and quickly kind of sum up the last parts, okay? Three reasons we want the reality. We want Jesus, not the shadow, the picture, okay? Reason one, we are made perfect through the sacrifice of Jesus, not by religious duty. We are made perfect by the sacrifice of Jesus. And I know that's a lot when I say we're made perfect, but I'll try to explain that here in a few minutes. We are made perfect through the sacrifice of Jesus, not by religious duty. So let's read the first section from Hebrews 10. A lot of material to cover here. Hebrews 10.1, the law. Now, when we're talking about the law here, we're talking about everything that God gave. And notice, this is very important, that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. There was nothing wrong with it. It was from God. It, but, it, but the writer of the Hebrews is saying it's, it was wonderful and it served its purpose. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. He's talking about, uh, as part of what God gave Moses on Sinai, I gave him the plan for the tabernacle that became the tabernacle of Moses, that became the permanent uh, temple of Solomon, that when the temple of Solomon was torn down at the time now of Christ, and the time this is being written, it had been rebuilt at and refurbished gloriously as the temple of Herod. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that sacrifices, animal sacrifices, were still at that time being made every day, and they had been for a thousand years. But he said uh, that that those sacrifices repeatedly, endless after, endlessly, year after year, can't make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? Why, he says, are they still doing that today if what they did worked? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Now he's talking about the once a year day of atonement. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, and now he quotes as he often does from the Old Testament, 
Uh, he quotes now from a Messianic Psalm, the 40th Psalm, and he puts these words in the mouth of Jesus. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, my God. This is powerful if you uh, understand it. And it takes a minute, you know, to get your mind around some of this. And by the way, thank you, guys. Uh, I've been really excited from a pastoral perspective at your reception to our teaching through Hebrews and how the crowds continue to grow and people are digging in and going deep and you're not coming for a show. You're coming ultimately, you know, for worship and to get teaching that, that is really full of the depth of God's word. Um, and and the, the God's word is what makes it special. So, so anyway, it, it takes, but it takes a minute, you know, to get your mind around things like this. He now, the writer of Hebrews, says essentially that the sacrifices that were made in the Old Covenant were not sufficient to, uh, to take away sin and to take away the guilt people felt because of sin. And so Jesus, he now pictures the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus has this conversation with God the Father, and people will call this the divine dialogue, where uh, in the, within the Godhead, there's this discussion where, where the Son essentially says to the Father, I know that you're not happy with what's happening with these sacrifices, that they're not sufficient to accomplish what you really want to have accomplished, so give me a body. And I'll do your will. I will offer the sacrifice that needs to be offered to accomplish this at oneness with humanity, Father, that you so desire. And now we'll pick up the text. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, who he's been talking about is the, is the true high priest, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, his body, he sat down at the right hand of God. He says the priests are in there in the temple right now where there are no seats to sit down. By the way, there are no seats in the temple. The priests, are, they're always standing. They're always doing their religious duty, religious duty, religious duty, religious duty, offering sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. But the sacrifice ultimately hasn't accomplished what it is that God wants, which is to make peace with humanity who chose to turn away from him all the way back in the beginning. And so Jesus Christ made his sacrifice, and this is a big point that I don't have time to get into, and after he made his sacrifice and, and, and ascended to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God. The priests are still standing up, he says, offering the sacrifices, but Jesus Christ is sitting in heaven. Because what needed to be done, he already did. And no, he doesn't have to stand up and ever offer a sacrifice again. He can just sit there and wait for this thing to play out over time. Okay? 
And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We'll come back to that. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, and now he quotes from uh, Jeremiah the prophet, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. He's making a contrast between the law that God gave Moses at Mount Sinai, which is written on a tablet of stone. Now God says, listen, that was good for its time, but now no one was able to keep it. And so now through what I've done, I've made it possible that people can be in a relationship with me that I'm now going to write my laws in their heart and I'm going to write it in their minds. They're going to want to do the things that I've asked them to do to be in relationship with me and to do my works in the world. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Okay, so a couple quick things. I'll basically read from my notes to bring up the kind of semi-technical part of this and then I'm going to get focused on what I hope will be application that will impact your life by God's grace, in a powerful way. Uh, this this uh, understanding is impacting me all over again. So the religious practices flowing from the law of Moses and particularly the sacrifices made in, in the tabernacle of Moses or subsequent temples could not make those who offered them right with God once and for all, or else they would not needed to be offered year after year. Those sacrifices played an important role under the old covenant, but they were a shadow pointing toward the greater reality, a picture of the better thing to come. And the better thing was the sacrifice of his body offered once and for all by Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews is making a point here that the sacrifices in the Old Testament were not necessary to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish through them, okay? But he didn't come up with that idea. In fact, that idea begins to be presented in the Old Covenant itself, where again and again, God says, I'm not these sacrifices and burnt offerings, even though I told you to do them, they, 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 they aren't completely accomplishing what I want. They're pointing towards something that's going to happen in the future. So you'll see, for instance, David in Psalm 51 who wrote, you do not delight in sacrifice or else would I bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Now, David was still offering sacrifices, but he knew ultimately there was had to be something more going on than just an animal killed as a sacrifice. Or you look at Isaiah chapter 1. God, speaking through Isaiah, says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? says the Lord. doesn't matter how many you make. Keep making them, but, it, but what are they to me? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the bull, blood of bulls and goats and lambs. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. And I could take you to scripture after scripture in the Old Testament where there's this, this, this thing from God saying, this, this isn't it. You're supposed to offer the sacrifice, but something better is coming 
that's going to render this obsolete. This isn't getting the job done, which is then where you have this glimpse of the divine dialogue that takes place between Father and Son and the Godhead. Again, Psalm 40, I already read it to you. It's embedded in Hebrews chapter 10, where Jesus said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. The Hebrew says, and there's a Long explanation of this I don't have time to get into. It speaks about the ear as a body part and a part of the body. But, but Hebrews says that Jesus said, but a body you have given me. Burn offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. Jesus says, Father, I hear your disappointment in how sacrifice is not the sacrifices people are making are not making them at one with you and not helping them live the life you wanted them to live. And so give me a body. Give me a body and I'll do your will. And so he does. And then, and, and, and by the way, a little side note uh, that maybe three people in this room will be interested in. Me, myself, and I, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, it's interesting to note, by the way, as this is being written, now Hebrews 10, as, as Hebrews is being written, it's, it's, again, it's the mid-60s AD, the temple is still functioning in Jerusalem. Sacrifice is still being made every day, right? But uh, about five years from now, AD 70, what happens? The Romans come into Jerusalem and they tear down the temple. And Jews have never offered animal sacrifices since, at least as a corporate people. Have never offered animal sacrifices since. So the, those, these Jewish believers in Jesus had come to understand that the sacrificial system was made obsolete because Jesus offered the sacrifice of himself. But even their Jewish brothers and sisters stopped making sacrifices when the temple was torn down and now their religion became distributed through systems of synagogues and so on and so forth but they no longer offered sacrifices sacrifices haven't been offered for 2,000 years which gives you a sense and this is what scholars say that the Jewish people themselves based on what the Old Testament says their scripture, our scripture too, but their scripture says the sacrifice thing isn't getting the job done. Well, Jesus says, give me a body. I'll do God's will. Okay, then there's this other really interesting thing that happens here in this text where the writer makes the point that the sacrifices offered in the, the tabernacle or temple were not sufficient to make the offerers perfect and did not remove their sense of guilt. And then he says, but by one sacrifice, the sacrifice Jesus made, we, those of us who believe in Jesus, have been made perfect. Now, that's a whole lot to get your mind around as well, isn't it? Because of our concept of what perfection means. But in this text, in the context, in the original Greek language in which it was written, and in the context in which it is spoken, perfection does not involve a lack of flaws, but rather a state of right relationship with God. 
in which the worshipers are once and for all cleansed from sin and delivered from a nagging sense of guilt. So you can leave that on the screen for a few minutes because I, th- th- that it's important to understand. It's almost like, I, I haven't thought through saying it this way, but uh, when, when, when one of the uh, greatest moments of my life, in fact, I can't think of anything greater that I've ever experienced is the birth of our first child, our daughter Summer. I remember this, this overwhelming, I don't know what it is, that, that happened to me as this, as this little girl was born, and, and I could look at her and I could say, she is perfect. Now, that, that's, in a sense, a subjective statement, because she was perfect to me. And somehow, in a big cosmic sense, God when we believe in Jesus, considers us to be perfect, meaning we are exactly what we need to be to be in right relationship with him. As Father God, he looks at his children who've been born again, and he says, you are perfect. Now, When we understand that, it removes from us a nagging sense of guilt. Let's get in that in in a moment. Let's look a little further at this perfect thing. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 coupled with Hebrews 10 14 is uh, uh, interesting. And by that will, the will uh, of the Father to send Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It's kind of interesting. We're called perfect and we're called holy. And then we're told that we're being made holy. So are we holy or are we being made holy? The answer, of course, is yes. I talk about this in the simplest terms. I know how to talk about it. It's, I think this is actually pretty easy to grasp. This is where you start talking about justification and sanctification and position and condition, which is to say that when we believe in Jesus, we are at that moment considered just. Just means that we can stand in the presence of a holy God who is justice itself, and we can stand there because we've been declared just. Uh, when, we, when we believe in Jesus, Scripture tells us we are justified. Now, you've heard this before, but it's a nice little way to remember this. When we are justified, it is just as if I'd never sinned. Right? He chooses to forget, truly forget our sins. Think of the worst. I know, I'm sorry to remind you of this. You may remember the worst thing you've ever done. But the moment you believe, God promises to forget it. And because he's God, he actually can. And he looks at you on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he says, you are perfect. You are perfect. We're counted just. Now, that's our position. Our position never changes. 
This passage here says that we are made perfect forever. Your position in Christ, the moment you believe, is absolutely and completely secure. You can never become any more saved than you are at that moment. You can give a million dollars to the Christmas mission offering, and I'll like you and take you to dinner. But God doesn't like you anymore. Right? There's nothing you can do to get him to love you more. There's nothing you can do to get him to love you less. He just loves you. You, in his eyes, are perfect. Now, are you truly perfect? No, that's the difference between your position and your condition. Because sometimes your condition, let's be frank, it stinks, doesn't it? Because you've thought you shouldn't have, and you do things you shouldn't do, and you don't do things you should do. And the fact is, even though we are declared to no longer be sinners, and, and, and to be declared to be the righteousness of God in Christ, and though we are to see ourselves like that, because that's how God sees us, we are now no longer sinners who sin. We are now righteous people who sometimes sin. So, so it's a difference, but we sin. But we sin. But when we sin, it doesn't threaten our position. And see, this is a problem a lot of people have. You think God, you know, you're, you're, you're like the, 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 the forlorn, in love, you know, you know, fourth grade boy with a flower in your hand saying, she loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. You're doing good, you say, you feel like. You, this is how you feel in, in your inner person. God loves me. I, I, today I can believe that. One, one week you walk in church and you're confident and you're assured and you're feeling good and they're singing the worship songs and you've been pretty good this week and all that kind of stuff. And the next week, you know, Saturday night, you said something you shouldn't have said or you did something you shouldn't have done. And this Sunday you come walking and saying, God, don't strike me dead. In God's mind, nothing has changed. You don't get born again and become his child, and then you're unborn again, and you're no longer his child, and then you're born. You, you, when, when you're born again, you're his child. He looks at you, he considers you to be perfect. Now, now, that doesn't mean when we sin that we don't in that moment feel guilt for the sin that we committed. Hopefully, by God's grace, we do. We're convicted of that sin. We confess that sin. He forgives us that sin, but it's really the sacrifice that's already been made and the acceptance he's already offered being extended in your life every day as you're walking with him with a sincere heart and a full assurance of faith. Do you understand? Do I need to spend another hour on that point? <laughs> this is hugely important, guys. You... The secret to all of this working is very simple. It's you actually believing it. The gospel is, is, is based on two basic things. What Jesus did and you believing that what Jesus did, he really did for you. That's how the gospel becomes real in our lives. And when we really believe, we are counted to come alive to God. We are born again. We are justified. We are declared righteous. And God looks at us and God says, you are, you're perfect. You're perfect. 
Oh, that's justification. That's position. Well, then there's our condition, and that's where you start talking about sanctification. Sanctification is where God now, who you're now in a relationship with him. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. He's written his law in your heart and in your mind. Now God is at work in you, helping you actually to live like the person he says you are. And Christian growth is really about closing the gap between God, who God says you are in your objective position and who you are every day in your subjective condition. Spiritual growth is closing the gap between those things. Because God says you're perfect and he says, if you let me work in your life, I'll let your life look more and more the way that it should look for a child of mine who's believing in me and following after me. And then, and then part of what's happening with all of this, part of what's happening with all of this then is, is, and there's a lot here in Hebrews 10 about this, is we are, we have this nagging sense of guilt relieved. So see, the moment we confess our faith in Jesus and all the stuff I've talked about happens, it's, another way you can think about it, and I don't know how many metaphors I can throw out there. I'm going to confuse myself, but you could think about it's like you're in a court of law. You've been accused of, of a crime, and you were declared not guilty. You are innocent of that crime. Boom, you're not guilty. Now, does that mean you're going to go the rest of your life and you're never going to do anything wrong? You, no, in, in, in a great legal declared sense, you were declared innocent. I don't know how well this metaphor works, Uh, but I will say this, that when you come to Jesus and you confess your sins and you confess your faith, he declares you innocent. You are perfect. And based on that, we should no longer have a nagging sense of guilt. And I would compare that to what we discussed last week when we talked about shame. See, healthy guilt as opposed to a nagging sense of guilt. Or as opposed to shame. Healthy guilt says, I did something I shouldn't have done. I feel guilty. I, I, I did something bad. A nagging sense of guilt or shame says, I am something bad. And see, what God says is, you are not bad. Not once we believe in him. If the sacrifice of Jesus is really the sacrifice of Jesus and it covers for our sin, the moment we believe in Jesus, truly believe in Jesus and what he did for us, he says, I declare you not guilty. And we, and, 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 and he takes away our sin and our shame. Now, as we're moving forward in our lives and we make mistakes, and he says, you're no, you're not bad. You're not bad. You, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, as we move forward in our lives and we do things we feel guilty of, we confess our sins. We, if we don't accept that we're forgiven, we will not be transformed to become fully the person that God says we are. So many Christian people are religious in their thinking about this, by which, well, we're like the priest, we're we're, we're like Adam and Eve in the garden sowing our own fig leaves, and God says, that doesn't cover you. I'm going to sacrifice an animal, and I'm going to cover you with animal skin. Religion is a fig leaf. The, the, the priest in the temple every day, what are the priests doing in the temple every day? They're busy. They're doing what they knew to do. Right? But they're, they're offering sacrifice, they're offering sacrifice, they're offering sacrifice, they're offering sacrifice. Where's Jesus? Sitting down, 
Because he already did it. Religion is religious duty oriented where you think that you, you can somehow get good enough for God, do enough for God. And, and then this all becomes a matter of motivation. Why are you doing the things you're doing? Are you doing the things you're doing be out of religious duty? I'm tithing because I think God will like me better if I'm a tither. The fact is you should tithe. Jesus said you should tithe. It should be a no-brainer for a believer. But we're not doing it to get God to like us better or to earn us favor. That's religious duty. It's offering sacrifice, offering sacrifice, offering... It's this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. See, once now we know that we're forgiven, we can focus on a relationship with Jesus to where our relationship is based on love. It's based on relationship. It's based on a desire to want to please him and to, and to be involved in what he's doing in the world. So over here I'm tithing and it's, it's religious duty. But over here I'm tithing and it's joy. I get to be a part of what God's doing in the world. He asked me to do this. I want to do this. Here it is. The same thing's true in serving. The same thing's true about doing good works. It can either come from a religious duty place or it can come from a faith place where you say, hey, I know God's not going to like me any better because I'm doing all these good works over here at the soup kitchen. I know that, but I'm doing this because I love him and because he's forgiven me and because I'm in relationship with him. And these are the kind of things we do together. Eugene Peterson, uh, Eugene Peterson is the brilliant pastor scholar who translated um, the the, the uh, scripture into the message translation, which uh, is beautiful. He he offers a very interesting introduction to Hebrews in in the message. He writes, "It seems odd to say so, but too much religion is a bad thing." So, so let's make a let's make a, a a distinction here between religion and relationship. Okay. Let's call religion the things we're doing. Let's call relationship, look what he did. I'm in a relationship and now I'm going to do good things because I just, I love him. And this is what he asked me to do and I want to do these things, okay? Seems odd to say so, back to Peterson, but too much religion is a bad thing. We can't get too much of God, can't get too much faith and obedience, can't get too much love and worship, but religion, the well-intentioned efforts we make to get it all together for God, can very well get in the way of what God is doing for us. The main and central action is everywhere and always what God has done, is doing, and will do for us. Jesus is the revelation of that action. Our main and central task is to live in responsive obedience to God's action revealed in Jesus. Our part in the action is the act of faith. Uh, you, you've, you, you remember, uh, here's a good, wonderful illustration, I think, a funny illustration. Uh, Garrison Keillor, the uh, Lake Wobegon NPR radio show, he's a humorist anyway. Uh, you don't remember. Anyway, uh, he, he, he talks a lot in his, in his humor uh, and in his writings, and he's a prolific author, about Lutheranism. Because he happened to be born a Lutheran. If you're Lutheran, don't be offended. This is, this is the, to substitute the word religion. This could be Baptist, this could be Roman Catholic, this could be Pentecostal, this could be whatever. I'm talking now within the Christian family, okay? So substitute that in your mind and see if this doesn't relate. So, so one character says to another character in Wobegon Boy, you don't have conversion experiences in the Lutheran church, said April. We have them privately, I said. Basically, Lutherans don't believe you can get rid of guilt by bursting into tears. 
We believe that you work off guilt by serving on committees. That's what leads people to coach youth basketball and be on the church board, you know, a good sense of guilt. Your average peewee hockey coach is a guy who's paying back for a weekend in a motel with an aerobics instructor named Trish, I said. Oh, yes, I said, the best high school teacher I ever had was carrying on an affair. When people run somebody out of town for messing around, they're losing the person who could have run vacation Bible school for the next 20 years and never expect a word of thanks. Do you get the point? You go to the average religious Christian church in this country, and people are trying to deal with the nagging sense of guilt by the religious duty. I'm gonna, we're always standing. We're offering sacrifice every day, every day, every day. We got to do this. We got to do this in order so I can feel better before God as opposed to, look what Jesus did. I believe in Jesus. He forgave me. He thinks I'm perfect. I am so excited about being in relationship with God. What are we going to do, guys? Let's go change the world because everybody in the world needs to hear what Jesus has done. Do you see the difference in these two approaches? It's everything. And when it's all said and done, you either believe the gospel or you don't. The moment you believe, you come into this relationship with God. Jesus offered the last sacrifice that ever needs to be made for sin. Do you know during the Old Testament covenantal system, there were over a million sacrifices offered, according to historians? Over a thousand-year period, a million sacrifices, millions of gallons of blood spilled, animals, goats. At Passover, which we're coming into this, this, this coming uh, week, in, 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 in pa at Passover... They, the, there were so many sacrifices that were offered in, 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 the, in Jerusalem that they would actually dig a trough from the old city Jerusalem into the valley of Kidron, which Jesus rode down to get into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday so that the blood could be trained from the city. It was like a sewer system for blood. Jesus Christ, when he rode past that trough on Palm Sunday and when he went into that city to offer himself as a sacrifice, that was was the last blood that ever needs to be shed for sin, period. Every year at Good Friday, there's a group of people, you can only imagine how sincere they must be, a group of well-intentioned people, I have no doubt, but religious people who are crucified in the, in the Philippines. They allow themselves to be hung on a cross and crucified. Now, they don't do it until death. But, 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 but let me ask you a question. Does that, does that make them any more holy? No. The only sacrifice for sins that works, the only sacrifice for sin that removes guilt and shame is the sacrifice that Jesus Christ offered for us 2,000 years ago. That's it. All right, I, I, I will, I'm going to quickly just read the rest of this passage, and, 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 and we're going to do a closing song, and I'll say a benediction. Here's the second reason that we don't want the shadow, but we want the reality. I'll do my best to read this, make a couple comments. It speaks for itself pretty well. But reason two is we can have confidence, not live in fear. So then the writer of Hebrews turns around and says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in other words, because of everything that we've just said, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, since we come 
come into God's presence through the curtain of the temple, since it's been torn down and all of us can come in by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. His torn body was the ripped curtain that gives us entrance into the presence of God as we've taught in recent weeks And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus, let us draw near to God with a, important, sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure waters. Most most scholars believe that this has to do with the fact that when we believe in Jesus and when we're baptized, that it's as if our hearts are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now that we got this settled, let's get on with doing good things with proper motivation, not giving up meeting together. Now we, a lot of these people stopped going to church because they were so discouraged and they were thinking about going back to Judaism. He says, That's got it. None of, we got to need to get together. We're going to encourage each other with who Jesus is and who we are in Jesus. And let's do good things and all of that, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Look, when we accept everything else that has been said to this point in Hebrews, then we have the confidence needed to boldly pursue the intimate relationship with God that God has wanted to have with humanity since the very beginning, but which sin messed up. And here's the third and final reason. Reason three. When we persevere, we receive everything God promised. Now, you might remember that the issue at hand is that these Hebrews were thinking about turning away from Jesus and the church and going back. And and now he's going to say, if you do that, it's not going to go well for you. And this is the one time he gets a little, we would say negative, but it's really not. It's just truth. He said, if we deliberately, Hebrews 10, 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Let me comment on that real quick, and then I'll read this last portion. This is a very, uh, this is a text that people spend a lot of time talking about. It sounds complex, but it's really quite simple. To keep it simple, let me, let me read the words of uh, R. Kent Hughes, a, a, a scholar on Hebrews who writes, The preacher is not saying that if believers persist in sinning deliberately, there will come a point where the effect of Christ's sacrifice runs out. Rather, what the writer is describing is a graceless, reprobate state characterized by two things, deliberateness and continuance. This deliberate sin is continual. The person persists in open rebellion against God and his word. Or as John Calvin said, this refers to those who forsake the church and separate themselves from Christ. So in this text now, the writer is saying, if you intentionally and repeatedly refuse what has been offered to you through Jesus, then this won't work for you. He says, I've, I've spent, you know, he's used all of his ink writing all this. If you don't believe what I've just said to you and you choose to turn away from Jesus and go back to the picture, then what Jesus did isn't going to work 
for you. This doesn't mean, a lot of people read this and they think, well, does that mean if I commit the same sin three weeks from now, I committed three weeks ago, that Jesus won't forgive me anymore? No, absolutely not. But if you intentionally and deliberately say, Jesus, I don't want you, I don't believe what you did, I don't want what you did, then what Jesus did for you can't work. It makes sense, doesn't it? And then he talks about judgment. And judgment in Scripture is very simply this. Judgment is that we all get what we want in the end. And if you want to walk away from Jesus and walk away from the church, then Jesus says, I guess you've made the choice that you don't want to spend eternity with me and the rest of these people. And I, and from the very beginning, God's deal with humanity has always been, I'm going to give you what you want. Now, the positive side of that, of course, is if you want what Jesus came to do, well, you're considered perfect and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to commit sins and you're going to ask for forgiveness. You're not going to live with a nagging sense of guilt, even though sometimes you feel guilty when you're forgiven. You're, when you confess, you're going to accept forgiveness and move on. That's one thing. But then there's, there are these other people, and I rarely ever actually meet anyone like this who says, I'm just turning away from this. I don't want it. And if you don't want it, God says, I, I love you. I wish you didn't make that choice. But, you know, if that's what you want now, that's what you're going to have forever. And you'll be separated from me. But it's your choice. It's up to you. And then he picks up here back to the main point. Remember those earlier days after you would receive the light when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed but to those who have faith and are saved in other words he says hey guys don't turn away from where you're headed in your relationship with Jesus persevere and regardless how challenging things are because of who Jesus is and who you are in Christ you're going to be richly rewarded it's all going to work out better than you ever dreamed